Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is David French. David is a senior writer for National Review, a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, and a contributor to Time Magazine. He's also a New York Times best-selling author, and he's frequently a panelist on shows like Meet the Press and Real Time with Bill Maher. He was the subject of a recent piece in First Things by Saurabh Amaury, op-ed editor of the New York Post. The piece was called Against David Frenchism. In Amaury's mind, Frenchism is a kind of conservatism that cedes too much ground to liberalism's enshrinement of personal autonomy. We talk about that criticism, among other things. It was a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you David French. David, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be back. I, you know, we've always talked television, just matter of factly, and I do before we get into matters of of, of weight and import. I, I do want to ask you, as a Game of Thrones fan, were you satisfied by the conclusion, by the finale? Or I would say, I would say, I was mostly satisfied. I mean, look, there is no question that the last two seasons departed pretty dramatically from the pacing of the first two seasons, the first six seasons. Uh, no question about that. I mean, things happen really quickly that would have taken, you know, three seasons to slowly wind out. But a lot of it was the consequence of George R. R. Martin, quite, quite frankly, just dropping the ball. He created a, a sprawling, incredibly rich uh, world and an inc- sprawling, incredibly rich story and then just didn't finish it. And so, um, you know, it's going to be hard to finish this thing. It's going to be hard to land this plane. So I think the overall substance of the ending, I'm more than happy with. I think the the way it ended with the Starks, the way it ended for each of the major characters, I think was true to the characters by and large. Um, and there were some moments, individual moments, that were some of the best moments I've ever seen on television. The Battle of Winterfell, I tweeted this out after it happened, was the best 90 minutes of TV I'd ever seen in my entire life, and I stand by that. That was unbelievable. But I'm not going to say it was the best season. Yeah, yeah, I think that you're right about the pacing, and you know, the guys wanted to go make a Star Wars movie. And also, you know, Ross Douthat had a critique that I thought was was on target. So you know that... that Martin attempted to sort of do deep textured fantasy, like which is is a challenging. You know, people have tried it since Tolkien, and he really created an interesting fantasy world. But then also blend that with a realist Machiavellian kind of politics, and it it it, it did that for a while. And then towards the end, it seemed that I mean, Ross thought that it, it sort of gave on the fantasy and the politics, and that might be a fair criticism that some of the you know, like like the, the three-eyed raven, we just like, <laughs> it's funny that at the end they say, well, he's the three-eyed raven, he can be king, and no one, you know, uh, the new prince of Dorne, why isn't he saying, what's a three-eyed raven, everybody? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, but there's a lot, you, you got the feeling that by the time they had this final, this climactic council, there'd been, you know, there would have been a full season worth of backroom dealings that we were not privy to. So that's what I mean by the pacing. I think that, but I, I really... I'm going to, 
I just default on laying this in George R. R. Martin's lap. And, he, and here's the main reason. He created a story that at its heart was not fantasy. It was War of the Roses, in, political intrigue, military strategizing, treachery. That was the heart of it. But then he put a Sauron figure in the story anyway, in The Night King. And so you have this story that really got... And the Night King is not in the book, actually, too. That That's an addition in the television series. In the book, there was there were wa- walkers, but walkers, no Night King. Yeah, right. But, you know, you have the wall and you have the walkers. So you have this incredible fantasy element. You have the dragons. And so, you know, um, I, you know, I, I liked uh, in the Ringer podcast um, with, you know, with Mally Rubin and Jason Concepcion, they had this really kind of moving uh, discussion at the end of last season where they were saying, you've got, if you're going to really land this thing, you have to do what you haven't done from day one, which is really embrace the fantasy elements. And they never were able to, to truly get that. And with the one exception of the set piece, 90 minutes of the actual battle of Winterfell, which just, captured the hopelessness of the situation in the way that even the Battle of Helm's Deep and the Two Towers didn't capture Pelennor Fields in Return of the King didn't capture. Man, we're nerding out now. But um, it really captured the, the the fantasy elements. But as a rule... Yeah, when you saw those Dothraki, all those swords just go out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or, you know, when you saw the spectacle of all the swords being lit... That was ast- astonishing. Or when you saw the dragons in the moonlight above the clouds. I mean, all there were just moments that really captured it. But the um, it ha- it was a not it was a non fantasy story or a non magical story that at its essence that had a lot of magical elements, and they could never really reconcile that. So on to Frenchism. Now <laughs> I'm an ism. You, you're an ism now. I mean, which is uh, who doesn't want to be an ism <laughs> at, at some point. By the, so I was looking up this article, by the way, when I when I first read it uh, by Soram Amari in First Things. Soram used to be at Commentary and now is, uh, the I think, the editor at the New York Post editorial page or op-ed page. Uh, I saw this against David Frenchism and it's sort of a clean-shaven French in the, in the picture, <laughs> it is. banner picture. I think it's like an eight-year-old picture. The credit for that photograph I found was by Gage Skidmore. <laughs> so we'll give them their credit. But Sarah Maori, who uh, is, publishes this piece in First Things, and he basically says that Frenchism is this kind of, I mean, I guess he, he casts it as a both a, a, a sort of winsome-tempered uh, disposition, you know, and a commitment to classical political liberalism, which for a person who has conservative convictions and is a religious traditionalist, a Christian, is completely naive because we're in Machiavellian times. This is the Battle of Winterfell. You know, we can't, right. we're, we're beyond procedures and fairness. And when we've got drag queen story hour or whatever in Sacramento or wherever that was, that then all bets are off and you know, it's a last man standing kind of cage match. So is that a fair, uh, albeit somewhat sensationalized summary of his argument? Yeah, I would say it had. So, uh, yeah, there's a couple of elements to it. One is the creation of the straw man version of me, which is this, some sort of milk toast libertarian. And I add, yeah. the, I add the qualification milk toast because most libertarians I don't know or that I know are not milk toast, but I'm some sort of like caricatured milk toast libertarianism. Who's just sort of, begging and pleading for the larger forces of the culture to leave me alone. 
um, which is completely contrary to basically my whole career and everything I write. But the um, what what he essentially did was to say uh, his argument had three major components. Uh, one was the threats to the highest good, uh, which he, he didn't really define, are are such that and so dramatic that politics is now reaching a point of what he the phrase he used was war and enmity. When you are in the middle of this war and enmity with the stakes this large, that civility and decency are second order values. In other words, they're not just optional, but maybe even undesirable in the face of the emergency of the times. And that one of the reasons why, and we cannot re, we cannot look to the principles of classical liberalism uh, to save us from this emergency, because classical liberalism is in fact part of the problem. It is our very small L liberal values have brought our culture to this crisis. And I disagree on every point. Uh, I disagree on the point that politics is war and enmity. I disagree that civility and decency are second order values. And I disagree that classical liberalism has brought our nation to the current point of cultural conflict. I think that classical liberalism is in fact the thing that has rescued us in the past from the consequences of cultural conflict and has given multiple American communities the room to flourish in a, in a remarkable way. And it is also the path forward through our current polarization that's being driven by illiberal elements on the right and the left. And, and, and here, I mean, Saurabh Amari, I mean, he doesn't, I don't know how much he's read people like Alistair McIntyre or folks like that, but there is this sort of, I mean, Alistair, you think of Alistair McIntyre, major, you know, 20th century philosopher and theologians like Stanley Harawas at Duke and and people like uh, who's the guy at Notre Dame? D, uh, uh, who wrote the Failure of Liberalism book? Um, his name's escaping me now. But Patrick Deneen. Patrick Deneen, right? Yes. He's another one who's who's in this kind of tradition. There is a tradition that predates the kind of Benedict option, right? Uh, a, 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 and some of the sort of you know folks at first things who have sort of said, "Hey, we got to throw in with Trump and that sort of stuff." Uh, you know, liberalism is is you know is waning. I mean, this is there is a, a pedigree of this tradition that's yes. basically you know modernity, liberalism, capitalism, the whole thing. You know, free markets, the free society, and and that sort of enlightenment sense is just makes terrible people. It can't. It's it's all rights, no duty, no commitment, no character, and it creates terrible people. And I mean, so he's. So Saurabh, I mean, doesn't ground it in, in, in that intellectual well, but it, it's, it's one that, that, that's in the water. It's been in the, in the current sure. time. Yeah, it has echoes of Deneen's book, echoes of some of these other critiques. And, and I reviewed Deneen's book for National Review. And, and when we talk about liberalism and we talk about uh, classical liberalism, I'm, I'm defending a, the, the structure in the American con, in the American revolutionary context, the American constitutional tradition, because liberalism doesn't look the same in all places. I mean, there was a French revolutionary tradition that I think is very different, for example, where there was an explicit intent, uh, for example, to overthrow not just the authority of the church over secular affairs, but the authority of the church, period in erecting its place, you know, this cult of reason, that's very different from the American founding. That's very different from the American Declaration of Independence and the American Bill of Rights, which has long recognized. And indeed, the founders, you know, many of the founders would argue, uh, and, and you know, a lot of the early, the early American uh, or the early thinkers evaluating this American experiment would say that Look, this is this is a, an American experiment that depends a great deal uh, on the 
on the virtue of its citizens and through, you know, the flourishing of civil society. And, you know, John Adams said uh, that our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate to the governance of any other. And, and so what you're talking about is a constitutional structure that from the beginning quite explicitly protected the church, protected free exercise of religion, protected voluntary association. Now, of course, these blessings of liberty were not universally extended to everyone, and it took an awful lot of people many years of argue, argument. It took a civil war. It took argument after the civil war to extend those blessings of liberty, but the framework, the foundation was laid. And that's and so I wish that when we're talking about liberalism, we would keep it, we would talk about it in the American context, which the American context depends a great deal on civil society, uh, and it depends a great deal on flourishing civil and civic institutions. And that's what we're talking about. And, and when I talk about defending the classical liberal order, on the one hand, I, th- I talk about defending the government, uh, defending the government's constitutional role as a protector of liberty but also advocating for the, um, the citizen's role as an instrument of virtue. And I think one of the big differences I have with, this, um, with my opponents on this is that they will trump the government's role as a protector of liberty for the sake of using the government as an instrument of virtue. And I think that's very perilous. Yeah, and that's, I mean, you look at people like Burke and traditional conservatives yeah right this was the idea was that you sort of you you, the government made space for the civil society which could be the agent of of cultivating virtue right well you didn't you didn't rely on the government for that i mean that this was part of the liberal project but i i wonder you know also do you you know i think of jonah goldberg's recent book suicide of the west which is incredibly interesting it talks about how for most of world history, we're very tribal, right? That, that the Enlightenment project and, and the founding of, of classical liberalism is unique in world history, right? That we would rise above tribalism and associate in ways that, are, you know, create space for pluralistic associations and things like this. And, and in many ways, the Judeo-Christian tradition, even its pre-modern uh, instantiation, is, is, is a universalizing force against right. tribalism, too. And it seems like the, the opponents of liberalism today are on the populist right and the kind of populist left. The, yes. the, 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 and both of them often seem to have sort of a kind of chronic anxiety that, that, that can sometimes cause lapses into popu- into tribalism on either side. And so it, it seems like you have a sort of uh, a sort of liberal left and a liberal right, and then an illiberal populist left and an illiberal populist right. Yes. And I think that the, the one of the core, if not the core dispute of our time. So for a long time, we've grown up with this classic culture war formulation that the division is, are you um, pro-life? Are you for abortion rights? Are you for this, you know, a broader reading of the Second Amendment, or are you for more expansive gun control? Are you for greater root space for religious liberty or greater room for non-discrimination statutes? I mean, these these are the kinds of conflicts that we've sort of grown up and say, well, that is the culture war. Well, now I think that we have to say there's there's two. There are the 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 culture war that's the old school one that is centered around specific issues. You know, where are you going to come down on this public policy issue? And then now there's one that I think is centered around something that is over it all. And what is the superstructure of the society in which we make these policy arguments? And that's the, and in that way, I feel like in many ways, I have a greater kinship with the liberal left than I do with the illiberal right, or and certainly the illiberal left. 
because when you're talking about illiberalism, you're talking about refuting the fundamentals of the American founding, which I, I would essentially define as articulated in an aspirational sense in the Declaration of, Appen- of Independence and then operationalized in the Constitution, including, most importantly, the Bill of Rights and the Civil War Amendments. And so if, if you and I both agree on the superstructure, then that superstructure can accommodate an awful lot of differences. We can have differences on core issues, but on, while we maintain the rule of law, while we maintain a commitment to each other's liberty, not just to my liberty, you, what, you're, what you're quite literally doing in the bluntest sense is you're avoiding war. That's what you're doing in the bluntest sense, because history teaches us that there is a level at which uh, people will refuse to consent to the blatant exercise of raw power and authority. And the thing that it makes me, gives me, fills me with dread about the rise of illiberalism is that, yeah, it will wave its hand for a while at the structures of constitutional governance. But when push comes to shove, it will default to raw power over constitutional structure. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems that one of the things that I don't get, you know, that I, I don't think I get in Sorb's piece is it it sounds like actually what he's afraid of is illiberalism, right? That, that basically he's afraid that, that the illiberal left will kind of use the machinations of power to constrain the liberty of religious people, you know, someone like him who's a traditionalist Catholic, right? And then, well, what's the answer? It sounds like he's saying, well, we need to be more liberal, consequences be damned, and take the public square back ourselves so we can make it safe for the public good, which it's it just, it, I mean, I, I don't, if, if he's saying, you know, there's other means behind argument and legislating and debate, like, I, I don't know what those are. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's, so you're, you've hit the nail on the head on the sense that the, the actual enemy, he points out time and time again, is illiberalism. So he would look at an illiberal move on the you know college campuses to suppress free speech or illiberal moves to squelch free exercise of religion. I mean, you name it. And then, and he's opposing these, this illiberalism. And then he's essentially saying, well, the, the liberalism does not provide us with the tools necessary to confront left illiberalism. So to confront left illiberalism, we have to drop the gloves and go with right illiberalism. And now that's not really fully defined how that would work. I mean, you know, one of the things that this whole thing started because on Memorial Day weekend, he he was appalled by the existence of something called a drag queen story hour or drag queen reading hour in Sacramento, California. And he tweeted that there was no polite David Frenchian way to deal with that. By and the way, then, two, two years previous to that, right, or two or three years on Memorial Day weekend, you were also the subject of a of of of, of a piece where, like, Bill Crystal said, "Hey, this is my th- my guy. Like, if we had David French run for president, he could <laughs> save us from the from the clutches of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton." Memorial Day weekend is like a big weekend for you. I need to start just like getting. I, I'm probably going to start getting like a fight or flight sort of syndrome when I roll into next Memorial Day weekend. Like, what what's going to happen? Like but, somebody's going to be like, he's going to be cast as Obi-Wan Kenobi's, like, distant nephew, great nephew in the next Star Wars movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that, that touched it all off. And what I'm still curious about is what is the illiberal response to Drag Queen Story Hour? Because my response to it is, don't go if you don't want to go. Like, 
you know, if you if you don't like drag queen reading hour, don't go to it. Um, but if you try to squelch it, if you try to say Sacramento Public Library, you cannot do this. Well, then you're creating a you're you're operating under a particular set of legal rules that can immediately be turned around to bite you if there's a tra- change in power. And and this is something that gets me about a lot of the arguments about big tech. You know, you Josh Hawley came out with a bill that uh, would essentially put the Federal Trade Commission in charge of dictating social media companies' political content and, and evaluating and determining if their political content is sufficiently or their, pol- their, their policy approach to political content is sufficiently neutral according to extremely vague standards. Yeah, that that just the thought of that terrifies me. Like the thought of that agency. That's <laughs> oh, amazing. It's amazing. And but the argument again and again is I'm some sort of quizzling or uh, what was the what was the phrase used in a magazine piece earlier or yesterday that Holly endorsed that I'm a peacetime conservative and a Neville Chamberlain-esque conservative because I don't want to violate the constitution to take on big tech. But I guess this is a a very let's forget drag queen reading hour, which is a very small issue involving a very small number of people, and let's talk about a big issue involving hundreds of millions of people, and that would be social media censorship. And the question is, do uh, the illiberal right would say all of these historic constitutional norms and values regarding the autonomy of private organizations and free speech? need to be shunted aside because we have an emergency. And um, I believe it was put, uh, essentially said that our constitution, at the beginning of the article, that our constitutional republic will end, will end <laughs> at the hands of a tech oligopoly. And and you're just like, you know, really? I mean, you know, and there are times and times of actual war, you know, well, you know, Lincoln suspended the writ of habeas corpus. I mean, there are things that we've been done that have been unconstitutional in times of actual war that we've turned out to regret. Uh, and here we are not in actual war and we're wanting to cast aside the constitution because of Facebook or something. And it's, I think that's a, that that's a much better example of the differences between me and the illiberal right. I don't want to toss aside the constitution. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest. 
Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalsner, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. In a recent podcast, your podcast, The Liberty Files, which I think is excellent, I would recommend to all my listeners, regardless of where you are politically, it's it, it's wonderful, it's engaging, you can learn a lot. Uh, you guys do a great job, you and Alexandra. Your Thank coach. you. But you guys, you, you mentioned something that, you know, in, in every kind of hot button issue, this sort of form the public discourse takes is that my opponent is not just wrong, but they're bad. Like they don't just, their ideas aren't just wrong. They're ill-intentioned, right? And and I think it it almost seems as if like the combination of that and the sky is falling, that plus the apocalypticism, like the other people are bad and the sky is falling. I mean, I, I feel like that's the sort of recipe for this sort of, let's junk the liberal tradition, right? There are bad people and these are bad times. Totally. I mean, totally. It's one thing to say, it's a lot harder to support stripping liberty from people when you say you're a good person, you're just mistaken, or you're well-intentioned, you're just mistaken. It's a lot easier to get fired up to strip liberty from people when you say he, you're, a, you're a bad human being and you're, um, and you're not just mistaken, you're malicious. You're bad and wrong, or you're bad and malicious. And, and really, that has become the dominant way in which we speak. And, and so it, what you'll find is partisans will be unwilling, completely unwilling to call out misconduct on their own side because they don't want to give ammunition to the other side, which is sitting there wagging its finger all day, every day, saying you're bad and wrong, you're bad and wrong. And if you call out your own side, what immediately happens? They'll say, see, even your own pundit, at your, you know, even your own writer at your own publication says this is bad and wrong. And, and so you get into this us versus them where you're circling the wagons and trying to create a false impression of your own virtue. At the same time, you're manufacturing a false uh, impression of the other side's vice. And, and the way that we do it, one of the, the emblem, one of the paradigmatic ways that we do it is through a process that Kevin Drum co- coined years ago um, in the blog, in the heyday of the blog era. And it's through this process called nut picking. And in nut picking is where you take the worst most ill-informed, most malicious, most aggressive, most ridiculous uh, argument from the other side and elevate it as emblematic of the other side's point of view and then rally your team against it. And you just see that that's basically the business model of Twitter. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that that I think, you know, I, I'm someone who identifies, you know, I, I'm a minister and a Christian, and I would say a sort of pretty traditional, uh, I went to an evangelical college, didn't grow up in the church, but and then went to kind of mainline graduate schools and stuff. And I, I'm, I'd say I'm left of center politically. And I have friends uh, who are, you know, right of center. I have lots of them. And I'll have lots of friends who are irreligious, atheists. And, 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 and you have friends who are uh, differ, you know, you're an evangelical and right of center politically. You have friends that are not religious of different religions and, and left of center. I, I mean, but things as things seem to be, you know, as polls and things show you and I would seem to be in somewhat of a minority being people that associate regularly and have, you know, a, a affinity for an affection for people that are different. 
Yeah. <laughs> Which is, it's, it's strange to say that, but that is, but, but that is a, a decreasing, it's an increasingly smaller and smaller tribe. Those yeah. Kinds the people. trends are running against cross-partisan friendship. The trends are running against cross-partisan relationships, you know, dating relationships. There are some polls that have indicated that parents would be more willing, for example, for their children to date someone of a different religion than of a different political party. Um, which is a complete inversion of what's actually important. And so, and then, so you have this decreasing tendency towards uh, relationships with people on the other side and an increasing tendency towards viewing the other side in the, with extremely negative personal characteristics. And there was this hidden tribe survey that came out yesterday that showed that Republicans and Democrats have a fundamentally erroneous view of each other's extremism. And that this, they, in other words, they view each other as more extreme than they really are. And then they, they say that the Republicans think like forty percent of Democrats are gay. That was a different survey, but yeah, that's so forty percent. The Democrats, Republicans think about forty percent of Democrats are gay, maybe a majority. So they, their their parad, paradigmatic Democrat would be like a gay atheist, <laughs> and. <laughs> And the Democrats' view of Republicans is as this very old, very wealthy, very religious group. And so, you know, the gay atheist, I guess, versus the 80-year-old televangelist. I mean, I don't know. It's the But the fact of the matter is Republicans are younger, less wealthy, and less religious than Democrats think. And Democrats are more religious, uh, more straight and more white than Republicans think. And so that's one survey. That was a 2018. But the more in common survey is talking about political attitudes. And so it turns out that um, Democrats support gun rights far more than Republicans think they do, that Republicans acknowledge the existence of racism and sexism in society far more than Democrats believe that they do. Democrats are far more affectionate towards police than Republicans think they are. I mean, so you have these really big disparities between the actual viewpoints and the perceived viewpoints, and it drives a lot of hostility. Yeah, it's interesting because you, you a lot of this too, I think, is is reinforced by cable news, talk radio, and things like that. It's, I, what I find interesting is you know the the pod the podcast medium has been a real boon, right? I think for intellectual center right folks like yourself or the folks at commentary, Jonah Goldberg, people like that, because you, I mean, I recommend to friends who are left of center your your guys stuff all the time. Said, so, look, you don't have to agree with their conclusions to learn a ton, uh, you know. But that sort of kind of more open handed discussion that uh, is more descriptive maybe than prescriptive in tone uh, that doesn't you know, that doesn't seem to move the needle as much, right? As the as the stuff that as the cable news stuff, the talk radio stuff which tends to sort of reinforce the stereotypes. Right. And uh, yes, yes. And one of the things that was interesting about the more in common survey is it found that the people who have the most accurate view of citizens on the other side of the divide were the least engaged people politically. <laughs> and, and, and the people with the least accurate view were the most engaged who consumed the most political media. And so uh, and that's why, incidentally, none of those people, like the the talking heads and the people that follow them, none of them could believe that somebody would vote for Obama, then be on the fence. You know, they were for Bernie, then decide for, to vote for Trump. 
you know, if if that survey is true, that's not surprising at all for right. a lot of people, right? Well, if you see, if you spend any time watching actual political programming or listening to actual political programming, it, none of it's surprising. I mean, it, and again, it's this nut picking phenomenon. You become very well acquainted with the worst people on the other side, um, and that's where we focus our attention. and And it has created this thing where literally America's elite politically engaged citizens, the people who who are the ones with the most civic education, the ones who can name all three branches of government, the ones who consider you know politics their hobby are the most mistaken about their fellow man. And the weird thing is it doesn't improve with education. So the more educated a Republican gets, they're basically going to have the same view of Democrats. And interestingly, the more educated a Democrat gets, the more wrong they are about Republicans. And so it's it, all of it is very counterintuitive unless you actually watch the formation of political opinion in the U.S., which is centered not so much around, say, the network news broadcasts, which actually uh, help Americans learn more about their fellow man, uh, but centered much more around the dead, the consumption of niche uh, political media, talk radio, Fox, MSNBC at an evening, Huffington Post, etc. And and that that actually fosters ignorance about your fellow citizens' beliefs. You think that's because you know the the. The cable news, the opinion shows, the television—you want to hook the devotee. Like, I mean, totally, because the, the, the mainstream media, you're not going to get devotees, right? Nobody's passionate about the evening news, right? You know, no, it's—I can't even name—I can name Lester Holt. I'm trying to think. I can't name any of the other anchors. That's why I thought Katie. Kirk was made such a mistake when she moved from the Today Show to an evening anchor because nobody's passionate about the evening anchors anymore, right? The Today Show at least is popular, but that's it's interesting. Those you you don't get devotees by trying to at least do your best to be fair, even if you have your own biases. You don't get a cult following by uh, by by sort of trying to at least inform. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and also you know, in a big country of 220 million people. If you can have an audience of 2 million, that's insignificant as a percentage of the U.S., but it's extremely lucrative. And you you can cultivate a loyal audience of 2, 3, 4 million people, uh, often by you know stoking these fears and creating a, an impression of a dangerous extremism. Now, let me be clear. There is such a thing as dangerous extremism. There are extremists. So I'm not saying that they don't exist. I mean, I'm not Pollyanna. I know that there are extremists on both sides of the political aisle. We just spent a lot of time talking about the illiberal right and the illiberal left. And for example, but the problem we have is an awful lot of people, if you say right or if you say left, will believe that the right is the illiberal right and the left is the illiberal left. And they won't recognize the diversity of viewpoints and traditions within each larger movement. So I I think it's fine to call out extremism. But to do it in a proper context and proportion is imperative. Do, do you think that, I mean, is there a silver lining to the kind of age of Trump and, and some of the even left-wing populism in that it, I mean, I think of someone like Jonah Goldberg, Jonah Goldberg's book, you know, this suicide, that people are, is there a sort of, 
awakening that we shouldn't take the liberal project for granted. I mean, it's it's an amazing thing that's produced an amazing amount of resources and space and dignity for yes. more people than we've ever had on the planet. I mean, this is Pinker's point, right? In the yeah. Enlightenment now, like in any metric, in any single metric, this is the best time in human history to be alive. And it, and this is the best corner of, of the planet probably you know, to, 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 to live in that area. And right. And I mean, and, and, and but that thing, it's not inevitable, right? I right. mean, it, it requires a, a cultivation of certain values that maybe we've taken for granted. You know, I do think there is an awakening of people on the right and the left about the need to defend liberalism itself and to defend the principles of the founding and the constitutional structure itself. That is happening. Um, the momentum, however, is on the forces of illiberalism because on the and that is where, uh, I, you know, just to take the GOP for example, the Republican Party is right now Donald Trump's party. I mean, there are dissenters within it. Uh, there are there are people who disagree with Trump. There are people who are uncomfortable with Trump, but it is Donald Trump's party. So um the the illiberal right and elements of the illiberal right have a lot more potency than they have had in the past and they have the apparatus of one of the two major political parties um you know right now there's a big conflict in the democratic primary between you know people who really like look at Joe Biden who truth be told his sort of instincts and policy positions and are are where a very large percentage of democrats are and say, well, he's just not adequate. His ideological position is not adequate for the American challenges, and we need to be thinking of the free, uh, wiping away all all student debt. We need to be wiping away all private health insurance. We need to be doing all of these things that, um, you know, a lot of progressives in good faith, well-meaning believe, but are also pretty far outside of the mainstream of, you know, where a lot of other Americans are. And, and so you're getting this, this real attention. Um, well, there's been this, a long argument between in politics, is your goal to persuade or to mobilize? Do you try to persuade people who are sort of nominally on the other side or wavering, or do you just mobilize a greater number of your core? And, and you know, it's interesting. In, in, as recently as George H.W. Bush, you know, in going into his convention right after whatever, he was like 25 points down or something to Dukakis. I mean, he was up, way down. 30, 25 to 30 points. And within three months, it was a landslide his way. So that much of the electorate was up for grabs. Right. You know, now it's like, you know, you look at like uh, Obama's wins over McCain and and Romney. Those are considered landslides, right? Like four or five point wins now. Like, I mean, those are contemporary. Wow. They won big when. I mean, that's, it's, we've really, I mean, it seems that the tribalism and the sort of sorting and the hyper-partisanship has seemed to make mobilizing, seemed to accent in, in, and push mobilizing to the front of the line. Yeah, you know, it is funny that historical perspective is really valuable because there was a time in my lifetime when a win like Obama's in 08 or Trump's in 2016, or especially Obama's in 2012, would have been viewed as sort of limping into the White House. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you had in 72, Nixon won 49 states. In 80, 76 was very, very close. 80, huge landslide. 84, historic landslide. 88, landslide. Then not even 92 and 96, there was no doubt about the magnitude of Clinton's victories. 2000, it got very close. 04, very close. 08, by historical measures in the middle of an unpopular war and a 
recession that the great recession, the worst recession since the great depression, you would think if anything was set up for a 49 state Reagan style landslide, it would have been that, but new. And then 2012 was closer, 2016 close again. I mean, 75,000 votes in three states switched yeah, sides. Hillary Clinton got more votes than any other candidate in history other than Obama 2008. She got more than Obama 2012. Uh, right. And it was still close and she, and she lost, you know, she lost. Yeah. I mean, but so that's, we're talking about that. That's why an awful lot of people legitimately say the path to political victory is mobilization and not persuasion. And they, you know, it's a matter of political tactics that the available evidence suggests that they're correct, that the era of George H.W. Bush being able to execute a 25-point polling swing against a, a person like Dukakis, that that day is over and that mobilization is the key. The problem with that is if your mobilization is also centered around um, demoniza- is centered around demonization, if your mobilization is centered around viewing politics as war and enmity, you are setting the table for a profound national division that gets magnified with each and every election. And I wonder if Trump makes the space for Joe Biden. I like. I think, like for instance, you know, Bloomberg wouldn't even get in the primary because I think you know he. I understand why. I think. Bloomberg would be an example of somebody who'd be a great general election Democratic candidate uh, and just could never get through the primary. And I think Joe Biden, you know, Trump calls him a 1% sleepy Joe. But I think, you know, it's interesting. The other times Biden has ran, you know, the sort of, and always the primaries are more controlled by the activists and and the further extremes of each party. But now I think with Trump, it, it almost seems like people want something safer. And so for the first time in his life, Joe Biden seems to have a moment where his personality and, and who he is and his stance actually put him in a good light in the primary. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. You know, the interesting thing, um, the interesting thing is about the Biden's phenomenon is Trump, in spite of the fact that, you know, the economy is doing well, we're at relative peace, although there is, you know, we still have troops deployed. It's at a much lower level than previous presidents. We have um, tension with Iran, but overall peace and prosperity. um, He should be topping out at a lot more than 42% in the polls, but an awful lot of people just don't like this man. Yeah, any, any traditional Republican, it would look like a walk to re-election with the economy numbers. Right? Or at I mean, the very least, a strong favorite. I mean, at the very least. And so, you know, you could have this sort of, you could have this really interesting phenomenon where where Americans who are just sort of sick of all the drama turn to Joe Biden and just say, can we just, can things be kind of normal again for a little while? Um, which may give us sort of a chance to take a breath. Um, who knows? Uh, But at the same time, I can guarantee you that even if Joe Biden wins the nomination in 2016 and he's still preaching the sort of civility gospel that he has been preaching lately and come under fire for, I might add, that um, even if he wins and preaches the civility gospel, the apocalyptic rhetoric, there will be apocalyptic rhetoric around this election because the Republicans will say, don't be fooled. Joe Biden might be come across as a nice guy, but he is going to populate his administration from top to bottom with woke social justice warriors. And it will be the end of us. And that will be that will be the the argument. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I yeah, I, I think that's 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 probably right. I'm interested. You talk about the apocalyptic rhetoric. You know, it's funny, like one of the things that struck me about Sora Bamari's piece, I'll link to it in the show notes too, but 
uh, is that there were, you know, for a guy who's afraid that he, that as a traditionalist Roman Catholic that that the you know that the liberal project is failing and he'll be marginalized. He doesn't really offer much Christian reflection or understanding or theological framework behind his position the way someone like, say, Rod Dreher does, right? Or, you know, I was looking at an article in First Things that was published in uh, in May of 2003. Doug Farrow wrote it, talking about three meanings of secular. And one was his, his arguing is conservative Catholic, arguing for eschatological secularism, where as just as God gives space to his creatures in the time between the time we can be sort of uh, Christian liberal, Christian liberal, classical liberals, like because God gives space for yeah. creatures to act, you know, even against their interests. So can we image God in that way on earth? It's just interesting how Amari doesn't really offer much of a Christian framework for the sort of, uh, anti-Frenchism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, the, yeah, yeah, for the anti-Frenchism. Well, it, it, there's not really a, a counter-program at all other than sort of casting Trump laughably as this instrument of social cohesion, which I had just kind of had to laugh out loud when I read that. But the, you know, the difference between, say, a Dreher or uh, Amari is, is Rod, and Rod's a friend. He's a great guy, deep thinker. Rod, if you read Benedict Option, is really, the core of it is focusing on how does the Christian community respond to the challenge of the time as we try to inculcate and perpetuate the truths of the Christian faith in succeeding generations. Really, it is not all that focused on the use of government as the instrument of the highest good. That, yeah, yeah, it's like the the fifteen percent of the book, it, like eighty five percent of the reviews respond to like fifteen percent exactly, of the book. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and and on the eighty five percent of the book, which is here's the ch- hey hey church, wake up! You have a challenge that you have to meet with your own children. Um, that is, I you know, uh, that is just pure gold, I think, and. The as far as the the political program of it all, that is absolutely the sixty four thousand dollar question to the illiberal higher good religious conservatives is how exactly if the culture is so lost and so bad and so depraved, how are you going to win elections and keep winning elections, implementing this Christian version of the higher good, often through illiberal means? I just don't see how that happens. Yeah, yeah, and he kind of makes fun of you. Oh, what's French going to say? Get people to go to church, have a cultural <laughs> awakening. Okay, like I'm just thinking, like, wow, release the hounds. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, like out of the first things, office is going to start like the new crusaders. Right? It's, it's very interesting. Well, and I mean, as if we haven't had, oh, I don't know, what what would be the phrase, great awakenings in American history. I mean, why would we denigrate the idea? Why would people of faith denigrate the idea of religious revival and revival of voluntarily, voluntary revival of religious faith and religious adherence and practice in the United States? It's yeah, I mean, the highest, the highest point of church attendance in the United States was the early 1960s. I mean, I mean, right. people in the 18th century went to church. Fewer people went to church less often. I mean, we did become increasingly religious. And- yes, and civic and things like that. I mean, that's, yeah. David, I have one last question for you, which is, you know, as someone who is, you are, you know, in the kind of the commentary, you're often in, you know, flown out to places like Aspen and places to talk about evangelicalism and the environment, or you're on Bill Maher, Meet the Press. 
And, and you're a trained lawyer. I'm wondering what is there a time like in recent memory, or you know, in in a, in the kind of discourse you've been in, where you thought, "Wow, I really lost the argument." Or I really, you know, <laughs> they, like, I mean, are, are there times because you're somebody that's trained to argue and you're paid to argue and and put out your perspective? Are there are, are there times when you thought, "Wow"? Somebody really, uh, that was persuasive or they got the best of me or, you know, are there times recently you remember something like that happening? Uh, well, so there's two, two things that happen. One is, and this is the frequent, this happens frequently. Well, you, you'll walk away from these really interesting and intense discussions and you'll think, man, I, I just kind of screwed that up. (laughs) I didn't present, I didn't present my position well. And so if I'm watching that as an unbiased observer, um, I lost. Um, I didn't do well. And which is not for me to say that I think I was persuaded that I was wrong. I just thought I, I didn't do a good job in describing why I was right. Now, th- there are the larger and more important question, I think, is were there times when I realized, yikes, I mean, I think I was I've been really wrong about this important issue. And, and I wrote about that, in fact, not long ago uh, this year, when I wrote about how I had really come to a very different perspective on police shootings. Um, that was a great piece. And you, you also talked about that with Ezra Klein, I think, yes. and on the Slate Political Gab Fest. And that was, yeah, that was great. Yeah. So that was one. And then, you know, I've also come to a really interesting, I've come to different conclusions about sort of the recent history of the American conservative movement. I've come to different conclusions about the primacy and importance of different issues in American, the American body politic. So yeah, I think that if you're sitting there and you're trying to approach the world with an open mind and an open heart, and you say, I have never changed my mind about anything because the world changes around you all the time. Um, I, you know, I, I would look at that person suspiciously. <laughs> so, yeah, there are many issues on which I've looked at it and I said, you know, I think the person who said that this was what we should be really focusing on as opposed to this other thing w- was right and I was wrong. And I, I could um, or the person who offered a particular critique of. You know, for a long time, I resisted the notion that the conservative movement was consumed with a lot of opportunism and grift as opposed to, this is going to sound naive, idealism and um, and intellectualism. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I've revised my recent history of the conservative movement, let's just say. Well, David, saying things like that, I'm sure people attribute that as just more of the the vices of Frenchism. But uh, <laughs> I think, hey, man, may your tribe increase. I appreciate your voice and public life. And uh, yeah, uh, blessings in your work, brother. Thank you so much. Deeply appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email. Or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information 
there. Thanks to David for coming on the podcast. You can find his writing and links to his podcast at nationalreview.com. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.